Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. Welcome to episode 11 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Christy Reagan of Vital Food Therapeutics, who combines nutritional therapies, lifestyle education, and counseling to assist her clients in achieving optimal health and well being. And having personal experience with a debilitating illness, she appreciates how nutrition and wellness therapies support us in healing. While she was obtaining her Master's of Science in Nutrition, Christy completed a year-long internship with Dr. Sandberg Lewis, who is a co-founder of the SIBO Centre. And she is currently working with Dr. Alison Seebecker, the other co-founder of the SIBO Centre. And she's formatting Dr. Seebecker's newest version of the SIBO-specific food guide. Today's show is so interesting and it's really uh, very valuable for any person who's currently going through SIBO treatment because it is all about food, diet and nutrition. We talk about what diet should you follow when you're treating your SIBO? Should you restrict foods? Should you feed the bacteria? We go through it all. It is just a wonderful chat with Christy and I'm sure you're going to find it incredibly useful for your SIBO journey. So I hope you enjoy episode 11 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Christy Reagan. Christy, it's so wonderful to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And we actually got to meet in Portland when I headed over to the States for the SIBO Symposium. And I met you even before the symposium started at this wonderful pop-up SIBO dinner. And it was so much fun. And I got to taste some of your gorgeous food too. (laughs) (laughs) It was so great to have you there. It was uh, such a pleasure that you were able to make it on kind of last minute notice. Yeah, it was great. Here I was flying into the States. Uh, I knew knew nobody and I was coming to Portland, a town that I've never been to before. And then suddenly there's this dinner and I'm going to it and it was just gorgeous. I met such lovely people there and it was such a fun night and a balmy summer's evening. And (laughs) here I was coming straight from Australia, from the depths of winter to this just gorgeous hospitality. So I had a wonderful time. (laughs) Great. Yeah, it was a, it was a really great night. I feel like people with SIBO should have more of that where they can go out and eat with friends and be in a comfortable environment where they feel safe with what they're eating. 
Exactly. It was it that was the great thing that I knew that I could eat freely off the menu because everything was SIBO friendly and everyone there had a common interest. We either had SIBO or people were interested in supporting people with SIBO. So it was just a it was a glorious night. So uh, hopefully there's more pop up dinners around the world for people uh, like with SIBO, just like that one, because it was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> now I would um I'd, I've got you on the show today because I one of the biggest topics for anyone treating SIBO is around their food and nutrition. And and that's an area that you specialize in. So I'd love to talk about how you came to be uh, in the position that you are in today, where you're working with people around their food and their nutrition um, to help them get well again. Um, yeah. So I decided to do a career change and go back to school. And while I was taking some of my medical prerequisites, I was diagnosed with SIBO back in 2012. And I ended up going to school in Portland. um, And I met Dr. Sandberg Lewis. He was actually my doctor um, and helped helped guide me through SIBO um, along with a team of wonderful people. And as I got my master's in nutrition, I it just made sense for me to focus on helping people with SIBO because I had been through it and I knew how isolating it and frustrating it was. So I uh, I created an internship with Dr. Sandberg Lewis while I was getting my master's and um, and was lucky enough to be able to learn a lot from him and I continue to learn a lot from local doctors. It's uh, Portland's a little bit of a SIBO town, if you will. <laughs> so, um, so it really helps me learn a lot to offer my clients. It's it's such a um, fascinating little sort of hot spot for digestive health, uh, Portland, yeah. and there's some incredible physicians uh, and. Um, practitioners in Portland who are all working towards trying to help people live a better life uh, with a SIBO. So it's, you know, I'd love to live there. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I don't like is the weather, but (laughs) the people in the food are great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So talk to me about your SIBO journey. Do you still have SIBO or have you been able to um, get rid of it? I um I think I'm part of the two thirds cases where um, there are some long term issues, <laughs> so I'm a harder case. But I um had really high hydrogen gas um, around 150, and um, and had you know a, a ton of anxiety and um, physical symptoms, and um, and that is definitely in my rear rear view mirror. Um, but I still have some residual pieces that I work with. Mm, and it, it is such a common story whereby people uh, are left with dealing with a sort of a longer term, if you will, chronic illness. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't seem to be, for most people, a quick fix when you start treating SIBO. Right, and I mean, I think part of it is, our knowledge is still um, just in the beginning phase. I mean, it's though this has been around in some form or other for many, many years, like Dr. Seabarker talks about, um, I think the focus of it 
um, of not just saying, oh, you have IBS symptoms and, you know, go home and don't stress out so much. Um, (laughs) You know, it's no longer that. Now we're looking at, you know, longer term people getting better, but it's, I still feel like it's in its infancy. Mm, So do I. And I'm sure in five years, 10 years, 20 years, we'll look back at this period and think, oh, we just knew nothing because our science will have evolved <laughs> and our research will have evolved. So we're really kind of working with what we can right now. Um, and one of those things that we can work with and that and that I know that people feel that they can have some control of is their food and their nutrition. Uh, it's so important in the uh, treatment of SIBO. Um, and I'd, I'd just like to talk a little bit about your, your own journey. Um, how how did you manage your food and nutrition um, with your SIBO and how much of an impact did that have on, on sort of progressing you through your condition? Well, I started out um, on the advice of my first doctor in Northern California. Um, I started out on the specific carbohydrate diet and, um, and it's not actually meant for SIBO. It wasn't, you know, created for SIBO. So it did help me in some ways, but in some ways, um, it didn't address my needs at all. And I think, you know, I was still reacting to a lot of high FODMAP foods that aren't taken out on the specific carbohydrate diet. So once I, um, moved to Portland and started seeing Dr. Sandberg Lewis, I transferred over to, uh, Dr. Seabrooker's SIBO-specific diet, and that definitely helped my symptoms. Um, But I also, you know, having been on a strict diet for so long and um, also being someone who really loves food, um, it it was really challenging for me to uh, cut so many things out and, um, and still figure out how to have beautiful food and eat with friends and feel comfortable going out. And so that's an area that, uh, you know, I really love to help people with as much as possible because um, it's it's a hard place to be. It is. And food should be joyous and, and wonderful and, and it can become such a stressful, uh, anxiety-filled thing that we have to do every day. Uh, and I think your experience, your own experience with um, being limited with food but loving food, I think must be so good for your with the clients that you work with. Um, who are the types of people that you see? I mostly see um, SIBO clients. <laughs> um, I have a you know a little couple other clients, but mostly SIBO folks, and uh, that are referred by doctors in my area. Um, but I also see people over Skype, you know, across the country or um, Earth. <laughs> so it's mostly people who are looking for help widening their diet or trying to figure out what they're reacting to in their diet. Um, People that are looking for new recipes or, you know, maybe don't even like cooking but need to figure out how they can, you know, have food around and nourish themselves um, and take care of themselves. And I think a lot of people that feel overwhelmed with all the changes and, you know, want someone to know what's going on with them and on their side to really kind of help them through the process. 
Yeah, and this condition can feel so isolating, I think, especially if you're the only person that you know that has uh, uh, digestive problems or, or, or SIBO. And when you look around and everyone else around you seems to be fine and they're eating burgers and fries and, you know, food that we just can't touch normally. Um, and they don't seem to have a problem and it can feel really unfair. Yeah. And I think there are two, maybe a lot of other people do have problems, but they, uh, you know, haven't really kind of faced up to them yet, Um, you know, that there's a pretty high percentage of people that have IBS symptoms and then a lot of those people have SIBO, but it's, you know, not named as SIBO yet. And, um, yeah, it's really hard to be the one, you know, on a more restrictive diet and um, get questions from other people or be told things like, oh, if I couldn't have a croissant, I would just die. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I agree. But um, it's also, I think, the flip side of that, and I think you've said this, um, is you're kind of introduced to this other way of eating that can really help you feel better and start managing your symptoms more um, and, you know, put you in a better place with your blood sugar possibly. I mean, there's all these kind of fringe benefits. Like no one would ask to have SIBO. No one would ask to have a vast change to their diet. And yet there possibly are some good things that come out of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I look at my own journey and think, Wow, two years ago when I was at the lowest I had ever been and I was desperately seeking answers as to why I felt sick. Um, you know, I wanted to know what it was, but I don't know that I necessarily wanted all of the changes that were about to unfold in my life. Yeah. But now when I look back with, you know, the great thing called hindsight, I realize it was the best thing possible for me. Um, it just didn't feel like it at the time. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm never so did. much healthier now. <laughs> yes. And other things like you say, and it's, it's interesting you raise it, other things have happened that I just didn't really think too much about previously and that was around my blood sugar. So I used to get terrible crashes and I'd get, the, you know, the hangry, the uh, hunger plus angry when I hadn't eaten. I couldn't I couldn't go for long periods without food because I would just get really shaky and I'd literally go from, you know, one minute being absolutely fine to the next minute like feeling like I needed to fall over because I'd just have such a dramatic drop in my blood sugar. And then as soon as I took out the Uh, carbohydrate and sugar rich foods and I moved to a completely natural way of eating all of that stopped and I I had thought you know okay there's a connection with my food here but I hadn't really delved too deeply into it and then other things like headaches joint pain um, you know I used to have some strange symptoms skin rashes none of that occurs anymore so there's great positives from from changing my diet as hard as it has been. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really wonderful to hear people, you know, have a transformation like that when, you know, things that were kind of one's normal at some point, like, oh, I just have joint pain all the time. <laughs> you know, I just have these rashes. And it's like, well, it's also possible not to have them. And you know, that normal can be, can be shifted to a healthier place. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and often to- it does take time. Yeah, exactly. I used to say, well, I just have to, I'm just one of those people that just has to eat every two to three hours. And uh, for some people that is their case, but for me, I've realized, no, it was just that the fuel I was putting in my body wasn't sustaining me long enough. And now I can, if I want to, I can go for several hours without food and I don't get any of those awful symptoms anymore. I just feel like I haven't eaten for a while. So it's a good, it's a nice change. It's nice for my friends and family as well. They don't have to deal with hangry Rebecca. (laughs) Love to talk around the different types of diet protocols that there are that people follow when it comes to SIBO. And this is such a topic of confusion and debate. And I'd love to go through what each diet type is and then why someone would use it. So we've got things like the SIBO-specific diet, the specific carbohydrate diet, low FODMAPs, autoimmune protocol. There's Dr. Narala Jacoby's SIBO biphasic diet, which is used here in Australia, which is what I used to great success. Um, Can you talk me through around, you know, what are those different types and when and why would you use them? Sure, except you can probably talk better about Dr. Narala's than I can. I can, yes. (laughs) I know that you're an expert on that, which is great. Um, So low FODMAP, um, FODMAP is fermentable oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols. So these are foods that can ferment and be eaten by the bacteria, which um, is normally, um, you know, it's it's normally a good part of a a bodily process and, and totally normal to eat these foods. These aren't bad foods, but when you have SIBO, then that's, uh, you know, you have an overgrowth in the wrong place. It's a location issue. So you often react to FODMAP foods. So it's, um, I like the, the uh, Monash University list because they do so much research and they have the app that is updated all the time. Um, so I think that's great. Um, and then the specific carbohydrate diet, um, and that's what I mentioned before that I started it on, that's um, a lot of people with different um, digestive issues use that diet. And um, the thing I, I will say I personally don't like about SCD or the specific carbohydrate diet is um, the fanatical compliance piece. And... I really recommend to my clients that you test foods and that some people will do well with certain foods and some people, you know, will be okay with different foods. And it's good to test and build up. And there's some, it's good to start with a general structure, but it's really meant to be a tool, um, at least for those people with SIBO, because they, you know, they can tolerate different things. Um, but SCD tends to look at polysaccharides um, and exclude those. So, and then uh, the SIBO-specific diet puts SCD and low FODMAP together, and that's Dr. Seebecker's diet. And additionally, in her next version that she's going to put out, um, it is also including a lot of her clinical experience. And so that, I think, is fantastic since she sees so many patients and is, you know, and able to impart that information to people. And a lot of the people I see are on the SIBO-specific diet or some form of that. Um, and 
just again, it's really, it is more restrictive because it's SCD and low FODMAP together. So it's more restrictive, but it can also be kind of a better starting place. Um, and it's just meant to be a guide. So, um, you know, it has like the far left green column, which is foods that tend to cause less symptoms in people. Um, but the, you know, columns further to the right, those can still be tested. Um, but they're things that, you know, might, you know, might cause symptoms in some people. Um, and then the autoimmune protocol diet is helpful for people that have autoimmune issues, um, diseases like celiac, what have you. And that can, can be combined um, with a SIBO-specific diet, what have you. And that's where it can be helpful um, but then, you know, people can, it can also feel more restrictive. So that's where testing, again, is really important. Um, and then, you know, diets can be further structured when someone's vegetarian or they have histamine issues or, you know, what have you. I think that the diets are a good place to start and not a good place to end. You know, it's, it's not meant to be an ending point. It's just meant to be a starting point and a tool. Mm. And how do you, um, what's your advice to someone that's listening to this podcast who is trying to work out which is the best diet for them? How would you, what would you say to them in terms of uh, starting somewhere? Well, if they know some foods that are, you know, that they already know they don't tolerate, that might give them some clues as far as, you know, if those are high FODMAP foods or not, that kind of thing. Um, I, depending if somebody's kind of in a flare where they're having a lot of, um, a lot of symptoms, like a lot of diarrhea, a lot of constipation, that type of thing, it is nice to do like a three-day intro diet where you're really trying to calm the system. Um, and, this is like very general. Um, so I, with my clients, you know, I talk to them very specifically knowing their medical history, but in general, most people do better with meat. So starting an introduction diet with meat, with, uh, polysaccharide free bone broth. Um, if they do well with bone broth in general, and then maybe like a vegetable like carrots that they know they do well with. And sticking with that for one to three days until the system is calmed a little bit and then adding food in. And how should people add food in? Because this, this is something um, I hear from a lot of people who are down to about five foods and they're feeling pretty miserable. How do you work with your clients on um, how to you know, get them to start broadening the foods that they can tolerate and can eat? It's, I mean, it's very challenging. And when people are starting to cut out more foods in their diet, um, I really recommend that uh, first they they try to kind of fight that as much as possible. And some people will have some symptoms. And, and having 
a symptom, like, great, it's not comfortable, but you kind of have to manage your symptoms with your nutrition. So you don't want to get to a point of being underweight um, or just having a couple foods that you can eat because then you might even become sensitive to just those foods. So you really want to focus on, um, you know, keeping your diet as wide as possible and, you know, so, and managing your symptoms, but knowing that if you have SIBO, you may still have symptoms. Um, so if you're already to a place of only having a few items in your diet, part of it depends on, you know, if you're underweight or not. Um, for people that are underweight, I generally recommend trying like a quarter cup of rice um, and not, um, you know, uh, just cooked rice so it's not cooked and uh, refrigerated and then introduced again because you don't want it to be a resistant starch. Um, so fresh cooked white rice, about a fourth cup to test that because for your, you know, for your carb intake. Um, or peeled white cooked uh, potato. Um, and those are two that are actually not on the diets, but it's they tend to be higher glycemic, so they don't stick around to ferment. Um, and I generally recommend eating them with a healthy fat, so that's ghee or butter or coconut oil or olive oil, depending on what people tolerate. Um, so to really put that fat and carb combination in there for weight gain as needed um, and to introduce things one at a time um, and it really depends on on the person and kind of what you know what kind of state they're in um, as far as how many things can be introduced um, you know and how quickly and how long uh, generally, and, and this is very general and every person is, is so unique, but how long generally does it take to introduce one new food? Should you do it, should it take you a few days or a week or like what kind of time frame are we looking at? I think with, with people with SIBO, I generally say um, test a food and then wait two days. And, and some people will say longer, um, but I feel like a lot of people with SIBO are in a sensitive enough state that they see a reaction pretty quickly. Um, either they have a reaction like, you know, they feel nauseous, they have bowel grumbling, that kind of thing, and so that it is pretty immediate, or they can see a change in, like, the next day in their bowel movements, um, or even that same day. Mm. And um, do you need to sort of, test and retest to make sure that that food is is okay or do you just eat it once and then if everything has been okay you can reintroduce it um I think if you eat it once and you get you know you get a symptom then you know to take it out and then if if you do okay then I recommend trying a little bit more um and sticking within your uh you know your your diet that you're on as far as the amount. So like, for instance, butternut squash, um, it's a fourth cup for the SIBO-specific diet, um, our low FODMAPs also, I believe. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I would test less than that to start 
and then go up to a fourth cup max. Um, and so kind of adding until you get up to the amount that is right for you. Yeah, and I think that um, that's that's really good advice that you just kind of keep testing. And I know with myself, uh, I tested foods throughout my journey and there were some foods that in the early days I could not tolerate. Pumpkin was one of them. I just – or squash. Yeah. I just couldn't eat it without having quite a strong reaction. But yeah. then at the six-month mark, it was fine. It was absolutely yeah. fine. So, um, you know, do you work with your clients around, you know, testing a food and then retesting it later on to see if they can tolerate it later down the track? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's so important because as we start healing, um, you know, different things are, you know, going to, we're going to react differently to them. And it's, I think it's really important to not say like, oh, I can never have pumpkin again because it's just not true. Whether it's a food sensitivity issue, um, because those will change if you have leaky gut, or if it's, you know, an issue of maybe, you know, the first time you had pumpkin, you also had butternut squash the night before, and so it's just too much squashes together, that kind of thing. Um, And that's also why it's helpful to keep a food diary um, you know, and not forever, but for a little while, at least hopefully in the beginning, um, that can be really helpful for people too. It can definitely. Um, and one thing that, uh, I I just want to touch on is around the symptoms. And I'm wondering if all symptoms are created equal. Uh, we are hyper aware of our symptoms when we have SIBO. We're so focused inward on, you know, how do we feel? Am I going to the toilet? Am I bloating? Am I in pain? And I'm wondering if we become hyper aware to the body's response to a new food and whether it necessarily is a negative reaction or it's just that it's a reaction because it's a new food? You know, do you, do you work with your clients around identifying, okay, well, that's just normal or that's something that, okay, your body really didn't like that? Like what's the spectrum of symptoms that we should be thinking about when it comes to reintroduction of food? That's a great point because yes. <laughs> so the answer is yes. I mean, I think that it's important to kind of ascertain, you know, what kind of symptom is normal versus, you know, something that's definitely bothering you. And then the other piece to that is anxiety and fear, which, you know, anyone who has SIBO and is on one of these diets, it's really easy to um, kind of gain some disordered eating patterns. And um, it's something that, I mean, I think we all have to be aware of um, that we're we're on this restrictive diet, and yet we also have to find ways to be present, to have really positive food experiences, um, and to keep our diets wider so that you know we don't kind of get sucked into this place of, of fear and anxiety all the time around food. Mm, I hear from people uh, all the time around disordered eating and people that have 
potentially suffered from eating disorders in the past and then they get diagnosed with SIBO and there's a lot of fear and anxiety that that going back into restricted eating is going to trigger their um, eating disorder. And I myself suffered from bulimia when I was younger and I remember at the time that my SIBO diet started that I thought, oh, this could be a trigger. I'm going to have to be really mindful of how I cope mentally with this diet because this is this could be a slippery slope for me. I had to be very conscious and, and, and it didn't become one. And I think because I was conscious of it potentially doing that that it didn't. Um, yeah. but I, I looked for I looked for signs within myself uh, that um, you know I didn't want to go there again. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a big deal. I mean, especially having it already in your life. Um, so, I mean, I applaud you for the mindfulness because I think that's a huge part of, you know, having SIBO or any illness of um, whether it's around eating or just around being ill is the ability to be present in our lives and find gratitude even when things are hard, um, and finding ways to be present continually. Mm, definitely. And, and that, um, that's one of the five key pillars to health that I realized I had to deal with when I was getting well. And there, there's that whole piece on mindset and also awareness that you need to, you know, be really mo- monitoring how you're thinking and feeling and also just how present you are. Um, the flip side of starting your SIBO diet is when you've got your all clear. And I know I suffered from uh, quite a bit of anxiety and I, I know I'm not alone with this. When I could start to open my diet up, I felt security and safety within my very limited foods. And when my naturopath said to me, Rebecca, it's time for us to start reintroducing other foods, testing them, broadening your diet, your, your bacteria, you know, your numbers are down. Let's get you back to eating as normally as we can. It did take me some time to get my head around that. How do you work with your clients around, you know, that phase of their treatment? Well, I think that's a very normal place to be because it's like you know you never want to go back to feeling the way that you felt before. Um, And yet, like your doctor said, I mean, your body needs a variety of foods, so it is really important to expand your diet. And so depending on someone's sensitivities, um, I recommend testing specific types of FODMAPs. So there are foods that you know, have specifically like only sorbitol in it as a high FODMAP or only mannitol in it as a high FODMAP. So for people that are more sensitive, I recommend testing specifically that way. And then you can see kind of what group of foods you know you do better with and to add those. And so that should help from a psychological perspective of, okay, this, like, I know I do okay with fructose. I'm going to go ahead and test, you know, this group of foods in um, and add them in, you know, as I do well with them. And that that feels a little bit safer and you're broadening your diet. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think that's that's fantastic advice and it definitely isn't, to me, it doesn't seem so overwhelming when you can be more narrow in your approach of the foods that you reintroduce. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we've talked. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no. I was just going to say we've talked about those that are underweight, but there's, as with SIBO, there's you know there's both sides of the coin. There's also those people like myself who struggle to lose weight, who have gained quite significant weight in some uh, instances with this condition. How do you work with them to help bring the the excess weight down um, when they feel like all they're doing is gaining? Um, so yes. And it's interesting. Like I, uh, kind of dealt with both sides of that coin myself. Um, when my hydrogen was at its highest, you know, I lost a lot of weight and, um, and I've never been a naturally thin person. Um, and, uh, and it's scary to lose that much weight. And then on the other side, you know, when your motility is, um, is slower and you're working with that piece, it's frustrating when you're not eating that much and, um, you know, or the, the food you're eating is very healthy and it, you know, it still isn't working the way you want. So, I mean, I think it's important, um, for everyone to be on a prokinetic, um, and I think most doctors know that now that they're prescribing a prokinetic after someone has gone through, you know, uh, the rounds of antibiotics or, or the treatment um, and, you know, are SIBO-free. And also, um, you know, I mean, I think it's scientifically proven that a high-carb, high-fat diet um, tends to be the one that helps people gain the most weight. Um, and so when you go lower carb and higher fat, then that can help and healthy fats, I mean, and that can help people lose weight. Um, but I think it needs to be done very judiciously and with exercise and with a prokinetic and really seeing what works for that person. Um, and, you know, there's different options for different people, but I think it should be done, you know, very consciously and very healthy because you also have to understand that you're still healing and that really want, you really want that to be your priority. Definitely. And we can get so caught up in wanting to attain the perfect figure, the perfect weight, uh, but I and I had to really uh, sort of change my thinking, um, and this has all occurred through my SIBO journey, uh, rather than worrying about what the scales were saying to me, I looked at it that my body was still not working optimally because it was still carrying weight. It was still saying, hey, I'm not coping. Right. My my mechanisms, my processes still aren't working properly. Uh, and and so I, I shifted my mindset of, okay, I'm still not, I haven't achieved my health goals yet. Right. So keep working. <laughs> keep working right, on it, Rebecca. Right, yeah. yeah. 
And I mean, you know, weight gain and inflammation are very closely linked. And so I think that's an important piece to also look at uh, as far as foods we're eating. Um, do we still have SIBO? Is there a different autoimmune piece or, or what is it? Because, uh, you know, like you mentioned before, it's often kind of a web and you have to pull it apart a bit. And for many people, it, it takes some time. It does. And I look at my own journey and SIBO really has been the tip of the iceberg. I, I already knew I had endometriosis, but when I was diagnosed with SIBO, I was then not long after that diagnosed with hemochromatosis where my system thinks I don't have enough iron and it stores too much. Although very interestingly, since getting rid of my SIBO, my iron saturation has gone back to normal, which is fascinating because it just shows how interconnected other conditions are with, um, with yes. the health of our gut. And yeah. now I'm looking at, you know, am I having some issues with insulin? So I know that I feel so much better now that I'm on a lower carbohydrate, almost no sugar other than a bit of fruit diet. Um, And, you know, and I am starting to see some weight come off slowly, (laughs) but it is frustrating. And at either either end of the spectrum, either underweight or overweight, it's frustrating, especially when you're not eating a lot and, and you feel that people are judging you because, you know, you look a certain way and it's not your fault necessarily. It's not because you're actively trying to do that. It's just that your system is saying, I'm really not coping right now. Right. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, people will say this, the craziest things to you. Um, (laughs) but I think that's where it's important to have a community of support, um, whether that's a group of friends or people that have SIBO um, and even, you know, your cadre of a doctor, nutritionist, whoever it is, it's important to have kind of a variety of support systems. It is. And having finding people that can uh can and are willing to go on the journey with you is important. I uh, look at my naturopath and she and I um, are doing this together. So she's very much on my team and part of my team. And I have a personal trainer that I work with and a psychologist that I work with. Mm-hmm. And I see them as my support team. Um, but my naturopath and I are uh, sort of on this journey where we're looking for what is going wrong in my body to prevent it from allowing the fat cells to be released to shift fat because we've done some body composition testing and we can see that I'm carrying um, a reasonable amount of excess fat on my system. It's not just that I am naturally heavy uh, on the scales. So um, it's great because I know that she's thinking about it. She's researching, she's looking into possible uh um, conditions that are causing this and, and where we're constantly moving forward and um, and trying to find a solution, which is great because I I have her support and I didn't have the support of medical practitioners for a long time. So it's really nice to finally have someone that I know believes me. Mm-hmm. I think that's huge. And I mean, what you said about, you know, kind of looking at the different pieces. I mean, I always want practitioners who are very, very curious, you know, that really are like, why is that happening? And they don't need to know, 
necessarily at the beginning. They need to want to know um, and want to explore it and really be on your side. I feel like someone who's interested in your story and your condition and curious that that's, uh, it's just so important. Um, whether it's a doctor that knows a ton about SIBO or someone who knows something about SIBO, but you know, they've been your doctor and confidant for a long time. Um, and it's, yeah, like you said too, you have a team of people. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to find that when one has kind of multiple conditions or, you know, a bigger picture issue. Mm, definitely. I really love what you just said there, having someone that's curious. And I think that's the real take home message that if you're seeing a practitioner and they're not curious and they don't want to know, <laughs> they're probably not the right practitioner for you. My naturopath doesn't know everything about everything, but she's curious in what's happening in my body and she wants to find the solutions. And if she's not the right person for me, I'm, I have great confidence that she would say, I think you should go and see this person because they've got expertise in this area. Um, but she's she's so curious and constantly learning and, and uh, it's great to be under her care. Nice, nice. Yeah. I'd just like to backtrack slightly and just talk about, we covered off the types of different diets that you can use when it comes to treating SIBO. Is there one diet protocol that you think is the best when it comes to treating SIBO? Um, Well, I think it depends on someone's individual health picture. A lot of people that I see are on the SIBO-specific diet um, because it combines SCD and low FODMAPs. So it tends to cut out a lot of things that tend to bother many people. Um, I mean, that said, again, I really believe in tailoring the diet to the specific person. And I mean, I might start with the SIBO-specific diet, but, you know, if someone has, you know, an autoimmune issue or what have you, they specifically have histamine intolerance, something like that, then, you know, we just continue to tailor it. And I think that uh, it's it's very human nature of us to want something that we can just rinse and repeat that we can follow and just follow it to the letter. Uh, But I think a real takeaway message here is that uh, we do need to play private investigator really into our own – our own bodies and what our bodies can tolerate and find the foods that work for us and use those those diet protocols as a guide rather than as black and white. Yes, yes. I'd be very critical of um, any person or thing that said, this is the exact right diet for you because I don't think there is one exact right diet for anybody that, you know, no matter the illness – it is person specific. You know, some people do really well with meat. Some people do well without meat, um, as long as they're getting protein, you know? So it's, I mean, it's such a hard place to be because we do, we really so much want an answer. So it's so hard to hear like, "Mm, you have to test. But the beautiful thing about it is kind of that side benefit after we get out of the worst of it is that, 
we become our own advocates and become experts on ourselves. Um, and when the anxiety lessens and we don't feel like we have to be hyper vigilant all the time, um, but still we, you know, but we know ourselves. I mean, that can be just a wonderful skill to have. I mean, I know for myself, I kind of came from a background of wanting to be a little bit divorced from some of the symptoms I was having, like, oh, that's not really a big deal. And then getting to the point where, you know, I learned more and more about myself and started to have an inner authority of, of what felt right to me. And, um, and that's, I, I feel like a skill that really permeates my life of, you know, being able to know myself and, and stand up for myself and pick people in my life who support me. Wonderful. That's so good to hear. And it is definitely, I think, part of the journey. And I'm, I feel very similar to that. What are your thoughts on feeding versus starving the bacteria um, when you're in active treatment? There's so much discussion and debate uh, amongst people that are uh, treating SIBO, uh, who have SIBO around this issue. How do you approach it? I say to feed judiciously. So to not make yourself sick with symptoms. Um, I think that's really important. You don't want to go into a flare. Um, but that it can be, I believe it can possibly be helpful to feed the bacteria a bit um, while you're in treatment. So to me, that means, you know, if you are sensitive to gluten, you don't go out and eat pizza, you know, um, you, you want to take care of yourself still, but it, you know, so it might be like having an avocado if you normally wouldn't have avocado, that type of thing where it's still, you know, healthy and you're not having mass amounts, but you are introducing some things that you've been avoiding. Mm, yeah, interesting. And I think the key there is don't go out and go crazy on highly processed foods because they're not good for anybody. Right. <laughs> and, I, right. and I do suspect that some people think that it is a license to do that, to go crazy. They're like, well, my doctor said feed the bacteria. So I'm going out and I'm eating a full pizza pie on my own. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And unfortunately that probably will have consequences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely. Do you have any sort of no-nos when it comes to food? Well, um, one is, you know, don't overly restrict, which we've talked about already. Um, so that's a big one to make sure that we're testing foods. And the other one is uh, to start out slowly um, when you're starting the diet. So I feel like um, it's normal to, if I, you know, ate a muffin for breakfast every morning before I started the diet, Maybe I'll still want, you know, a couple muffins every morning. But if they're now made with nuts, um, which are harder to digest, and I'm eating a lot of those, it might be a hard way to start out on the diet. So I think it's good to start out with, you know, keeping in mind the amounts um, listed on a diet and seeing how you do with those and not going overboard with the sweeteners and the nuts um, 
for some people, if, you know, if you have leaky gut, um, then, you know, it's good to peel and um, cook your vegetables and fruits well, um, puree them if needed. It's basically like you really want to help yourself out in the beginning to make sure that your food is as digestible as possible. What's your advice for people who, uh, you know, have commenced this the SIBO treatment and now they're having to work out, oh, my gosh, how do I eat out or how do I go to a friend's house for dinner? Um, how, do you, how do you help your clients with that side of life? Um, I think that that's very important to not lose socialization with our friends and family. Um, so it's great to have a couple local restaurants. They probably are a little bit higher end, like they're not fast food, um, where you either know there's something on the menu that is, um, you know, within the parameters of your diet and is safe for you, um, or you call ahead um, and talk to the chef or someone else there and specifically tell them you know, what you can eat and you tell them when you're coming in um, so they can expect you and have something ready for you. And I, it's been my personal experiences that most places really want to help you um, and accommodate you. And you just want to make sure to call, you know, not during a dinner service. You want to call early in the afternoon so the chef has time to talk to you or you know, a couple days before when possible. You don't want to put yourself in the situation where, you know, you're trying to get information from a waiter who, you know, has a bunch of tables and is already overworked and might, you know, just not understand your personal situation. And as far as going to someone's house for dinner, I think it's always nice to, um, if it's a party, to eat a bit before so that, you're not in starvation mode or feeling desperate that you have to eat something that you wouldn't normally eat um, that you know might cause symptoms. And I think it's also helpful to bring something with you. Um, and that's nice from the perspective of, you know, bringing something for the host or hostess if they're open to that. Um, and then also, some, you know, it's something that you know that you can eat, that you can put on your plate um, and, you know, not feel different, not have, you know, not have to answer questions from people of, you know, why aren't you eating, you know, et cetera, um, unless that's something that you want to talk about, and then that's great too, um, and maybe even bringing your own drink, um, like a limeade, something made with, uh, you know, homemade honey simple syrup and lime and water, just so you can, you know, have a drink in your hand and feel comfortable if that's, you know, something that makes you feel more at home. Yeah, and I applied all of those strategies when I was going through my journey and um, and it really worked. And I've got to say out of uh, – I did eat out a reasonable amount. Uh, I wasn't eating out as much as I probably normally would have, but there was only one cafe out of all of the places that I went to that uh, – that refused to make any modifications and that was fine. I just never went back there and I went to the places that I knew were really happy to accommodate me, were really interested in my condition, wanted to know more about it and were, you know, really eager and happy to tailor um, their menu 
um, so that I could eat something because at the end of the day, I'm, I've, I was a willing and happy uh, paying customer. So right. <laughs> they want my service. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. What, what about when you're traveling a lot? So there are people that contact me and say, I'm on the road for work a lot. Help. How do I do this? What, what do you say to people that have to, you know, eat on the go that normally would have potentially grabbed some takeaway food as their meals, as a meal option on the road? Yes, that definitely becomes more challenging for most people. Um, when possible to bring homemade snacks with you. Like I used to travel on an airplane with my 24 hour yogurt because I know I, you know, I knew that it was something that I did well with. Um, so I mean, I, I took it through airports and sometimes it went through very easily. Sometimes it got wanded, but, (laughs) but it just made it a little bit easier for me and gave me a little bit more peace of mind um, to have something with me. So anything you can take is great. And then I think it kind of goes back to, um, you know, being very specific when you go to a restaurant, even if you're just showing up there, can I have meat without a marinade, no spices, except for salt and pepper, you know, vegetables with butter, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, it, it's challenging, but I think it's, it's possible. It is. And something that I applied, my little technique was I would say uh, just so that people took me seriously, I would say I have an allergy mm-hmm. and these are the foods I can eat. Uh, right. So I would say so I can have protein, any kind of protein, as long as it's just uh, cooked simply with just olive oil and I could tolerate butter. So I, I could say if you could cook it in butter or olive oil, that's fine. No garlic, no onions. Yeah. Um, and then I'd say and, and just a salad because I could eat raw vegetables. Mm-hmm. So I'd say a salad with no dressing, maybe just a slice of lemon and some olive oil that I can make a dressing with or some plain steamed veggies. And, yeah, you know, sometimes I felt a little bit annoyed that I felt like I was eating quite plain food, but it meant that I could still go out, have social situations with my friends, uh, have a nice time. People, my friends realized what I was doing. They, they were all very supportive of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to have fun and I, you know, I still felt like I had a life. So right. <laughs> that's really important. <laughs> that's, that's funny because I used to say also that I had an allergy because, uh, restaurants, I feel like you know, and especially when you're traveling and it's not a restaurant you go to all the time, I think that that's, they respond to that better than, you know, they don't really understand what an intolerance is or they think, oh, that person just is on some kind of fad diet. So uh, I think putting across the seriousness of it, it can be very helpful. Exactly. And at the end of the day, excuse me, at the end of the day, our health is really important and we owe it to ourselves to take it seriously. So on occasion, a restaurant, I'd say no onion, no garlic, and my food would come out and it would be slathered in onion. You know, that'd be, the salad would be full of, the, full of onion slices. Now, I could have just gone, oh, well, I'll deal with it. But then I realized, well, the only person that's hurting is myself and the only person that is pro- prolonging my journey to health is myself. So I'd say, I'm sorry, but I, I did say that I have an onion allergy and I can't eat that. Can you please provide me with a new salad without onion? So 
yes, it can be hard, especially if you're not that kind of person who naturally speaks up or would speak out in a situation like that. Uh, but I just always thought, okay, I just want to get well and what do I need to do to do it? And I'm, I'm going to make sure that I eat the right food for myself at this point in time. Um, and so sometimes you have to have some what might be a little bit embarrassing or or difficult conversation, but I found that it was worth it in the end because I could then go home and I wouldn't have a, a flare and I could have experienced a nice night out, for instance. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, it's it's not worth it. And it, you know, it doesn't always feel great, but when you're feeling well and you're helping yourself in the healing process, I mean, long-term, that's what it's about. So one, one thing that you do uh, is around nutritional counseling, and I'm just really interested to learn more about even that terminology, like what is nutritional counseling? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I think it can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, I mean, I work with my clients on what they want. So, I mean... I would say recipe modification and what have you is not necessarily nutritional counseling, but it falls under that bigger umbrella. And that's, you know, what a lot of people start out with wanting is wanting help on knowing what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat, how to modify recipes, how to meal plan, that kind of thing. Um, But then I also think that part of nutritional counseling is how to be present Um, when we're eating, making sure that we are, you know, not only stopping to eat, but we're chewing our food and really tasting our food, um, the texture of it, smelling our food. And so, and dealing with the anxiety around eating and not knowing what to eat, or, I mean, you know, a lot of people with SIBO, have heightened levels of anxiety um, that just, you know, come along with, uh, with having SIBO. And so, in the addition of also having to be on a diet, then that, you know, if you don't have anxiety before, then you certainly have anxiety for that. And, and working with that, um, so with food and then in general, like what do you do when you feel overwhelmed. How do you come back to presence? You know, so, so it really is specific to the person, but, you know, I find that kind of food is, uh, the entry point with a lot of my clients. And then hopefully we're also working on, you know, their wellness of, of how to go through the process and the journey of healing. If there was a takeaway that you could give people listening to the podcast today on how to calm when it comes to eating, and I think that's, that's for me, I had to really work on that. How do you teach people how to just calm down before they sit down and, and have a meal? I, um, I recommend uh, that people go more into a grounded state um, and start out thinking about, okay, I'm going to try to have an anxiety-free meal because I know what I'm eating is supporting me. I'm, you know, eating in a nice environment or with my friends or family. 
Um, and starting with that piece and then also grounding through the body. So really, um, you know, I feel like when we have anxiety, our energy goes upward um, and we kind of have all those those random thoughts and we're going a mile a minute and is this going to be okay? What symptoms am I going to have? That kind of thing. But when we come back and feel our feet on the ground and feel the connection to the earth and the support from the earth and feel our bottom in the chair and really kind of do a body scan of, you know, how do I feel right now? You know, where, what kind of quality does my breath have? Can I follow a complete breath and, you know, not do anything about it, but just feel the quality of it? When we start to ground through the body, we start to become more present. And, um, gosh, just as far as calming our nervous system, that can have, and helping our motility and our digestion, it can have such big implications. And I'm assuming that when you're talking about grounding, you possibly advise not to be eating on the go. Like, what's your take on (laughs) eating on the go, Um, rushing around? Well, I I think uh, in our society, it's hard to not be rushed sometimes, especially when, um, you know, you you have kind of, if you're cooking for yourself and you, you know, aren't lucky enough to have a personal chef, then, you know, cooking can kind of be an added part-time or full-time job. So I don't want to pretend that people aren't ever going to be rushed, but I, I like to recommend that as much as possible, that there's some mindfulness, even if you're eating in the car, (laughs) you know, I think that that's possible that we can still come back to our groundedness and come back to ourselves and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, eat this thing in the car and I'm going to do my best to be present with it and notice my chewing and notice the tastes and how those linger and, the textures of my food, and if it's really chewed enough before I swallow it, those types of things. And I, I feel like it's important also to not have too much blame when those things don't happen, but to have more natural curiosity about ourselves. Like, oh, I just ate that whole, you know, the whole thing of that, and I didn't really notice. Like, what, where was I? What was I doing? Huh? Is that, you know, how can I tune in next time a little bit? Or maybe I was able to stay present for part of that, but then I zoned out and started thinking about, you know, such and such. So the curiosity and and kind of kindness to ourselves is really important. I think that's great advice and it's it's making me smile as I'm listening to you talking about that because that was such a journey that I went on and still am on. I was always a speed eater. Like I would win, I could have won awards <laughs> on how quickly I could eat a meal and I didn't mean to eat fast. I just loved the flavours so much. It just went in quickly and I had to, um, I realised and it was about becoming present and mindful uh, that when I ate really quickly, I didn't feel so good. Yeah. And I had also always eaten at my desk in front of a computer. So I'd have like my plate of food in front of me. I'd be typing. I'd probably be on a call as well. So I'd be literally doing three or four things at the one time, as well as trying to scoff down my lunch or my dinner or my breakfast. Right. <laughs> Pretty much every meal was in front of a computer. And then 
I made a conscious decision that as much as possible, I would get up and move and eat my food away from my computer in a completely different room. Mm-hmm. And I would turn off all my electrical devices. So I'd, I wouldn't have the TV on where possible. I would not have my phone or my iPad with me. I would literally just sit down and concentrate on eating and, and concentrate on slowing down my chewing. And I started to do something whereby I'd put a mouthful of food into my mouth and then I'd put my cutlery down and my hands in my lap and sit and Mm -hmm. chew. And I had to be really conscious about slowing down the speed at which I ate. And Mm. so, but now that's second nature to me. And it's really interesting for me now, if I have a day where I'm busy and we all have those days where we're run off our feet and I do have to eat on the go, I really can feel the difference. And that used to be my normal. So it's really interesting how my normal has shifted and now what was my normal feels abnormal and it doesn't feel me, right. make me feel so good. Right, right. And I think even when we are rushed to be able to say to ourselves like, well, can I afford three minutes? Can I even just sit over here? With, you know, without the media for three minutes and to give yourself that, whether it's three minutes or 20 minutes or an hour, but, you know, yeah, to, like you say, to start cultivating things over time and, um, and yeah, the things that come into your awareness are, are so interesting. Like, oh, when I take a big bite of something, I can't really taste it as well because I'm just struggling to swallow it, (laughs) you know. I mean, there's so many little pieces that, um, you know, are are so interesting. They are, definitely. And there's so much more to our nutrition than just – eating on its own so right <laughs> I think I think those tips that you've given are great and they're, and they're so useful for the uh, listeners today I just would love to say a big thank you for coming on the show and talking all things food and nutrition especially when it comes to SIBO um, because it is such a, in, an important part of our journey and something that we all can have some control of when which is which can be a positive and a negative when we're dealing with a condition like SIBO. <laughs> now, if people would like to find you, how can they connect with you? Um, my website is vitalfoodtherapeutics.com. I'll say that one more time because it's kind of long. I apologize. So vitalfoodtherapeutics.com. All one Lovely. Part. And I've got that link in the show notes below. So if you want to connect with Christy, then you can just click that link and head straight to her website. It's been a joy to have you on the Healthy Gut podcast today with me, Christy. And I uh, I think what you've talked about is so interesting and I'm sure it will help a lot of our listeners. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been my pleasure to be on. I hope you enjoyed episode 11 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Christy Reagan. If you would like the show notes or a full transcription from today's episode, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash food. Now, also on that website, you'll find a SIBO-specific diet meal plan that Christy has developed. And you can also download my food and mood diary so that you can 
keep track of what you are eating and how it's making you feel. So just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash food to get access to those two wonderful resources. And if you'd like to connect with Christy, you can also find her contact details on the show notes. Now, I adore hearing your feedback, so don't forget to leave us a rating and review in iTunes or the podcast app that you use to listen to this show. It also helps other people know that this is the right podcast for them. So if they see your review and they're also looking for help with their digestive concerns, then they know they've come to the right place. We also love connecting with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just find us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by Dr. Michael Ruscio, who talks about adrenal fatigue and thyroid concerns because both of those things are so common and prevalent in people with SIBO. So he talks about why that is the case and what we can do to help ourselves if our adrenals and our thyroids are not coping so well with our current state of affairs. So join me next week, next Tuesday, for episode 12 of The Healthy Gut Podcast. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Listening.